0: Nick Giacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Daniel Carlin. Daniel is a physician. He's board certified in psychiatry, addiction medicine, and clinical informatics, and he is currently the chief medical officer for MindMed a psychedelic pharmaceutical company pursuing clinical trials with various psychedelics and other psychoactive drugs to treat psychiatric ailments of different kinds. And we talked a lot about psychedelic medicine and medicine generally in this podcast. We talked about psychiatry and the current state of psychiatry, a little bit about its history and how it got to where it is in terms of how it works and the larger sort of healthcare structures it's embedded in. We talked about medical and academic research and the incentives that can buy and motivate people to behave in certain ways when it comes to medical research and and training and treating patients. We talked about psychedelics. We talked about psychedelic medicine and how it's different in some ways from traditional uh, psychiatric medications. We talked about what they're doing at MindMed, some of the drugs that they're testing, including forms of LSD that they're investigating for the potential to treat generalized anxiety disorder, a specific enantiomer of MDMA, which they're pursuing for the treatment of autism spectrum disorders, and some of the other things that they're doing. So if you're interested in in psychedelics and psychedelic medicine in particular, drug development as it relates to psychedelics psychedelics and sort of broader questions around medical education, medical ethics, patient access to medicines, including psychedelics and things in that general realm. This will be a really interesting conversation for you. I had a lot of fun speaking with Dan and he had a lot of interesting things to say around not just psychedelics and what he's doing at MindMed in particular, but just psychiatry and, and medicine, generally speaking, especially when it comes to psychiatry and treating mental health. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to check out the Mind & Matter Substack at mindandmatter.substack.com. You can sign up for a free weekly newsletter that gives you updates about the content I'm producing and, and what's on the horizon. You can become a paid supporter to help the podcast keep going and keep growing. Hey, everyone. I want to take a minute to tell you about a product I use called Everyday Dose. They have created excellent coffee and matcha products with functional mushrooms and other supplements and less caffeine than traditional coffee or matcha products. I actually reached out to them because I've been using their product for about a year or so, and listeners often ask me about my daily and weekly diet habits. They make a really good mushroom-based coffee alternative. It contains myconutrients with antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties, as well as collagen protein to help support healthier skin, nails, hair, and joints. And the amino acid L-theanine from tea leaves. Each cup has just about 39 milligrams of caffeine. That helps eliminate the caffeine crash that can come if you drink regular coffee, which has much higher caffeine levels. And they use a unique cold extraction process that results in lower acidity than normal coffee. And the caffeine microdose makes it suitable even for someone who doesn't normally drink coffee. This mushroom-based product is made using a double extraction from 100% percent mushroom fruiting bodies like lion's mane and chaga to maximize the extraction of micronutrients like beta-glucans, trites, terpenes, and sterols. Other brands don't typically do this, making Everyday Dose one of the highest quality products of its kind. It's gluten, dairy, and nut-free. There's no added sugar. It's paleo and keto-friendly and made with kosher ingredients. There are no grains or fillers, and it is lab-tested to ensure quality. I really like the taste of Everyday Dose compared to black coffee and other mushroom coffees. And they have a mushroom matcha product loaded with functional mushrooms and collagen proteins. So if you like green tea matcha, you'll probably like that product too. If you're interested in a healthy coffee alternative, I highly recommend giving Everyday Dose a try. Check out the link in the episode description or visit everydaydose.com to learn more. If you go there, you can find special offers that they have for getting a free frother and free travel pack of on-the-go doses with your purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Daniel Carlin.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Dan Carlin, I'm a psychiatrist by by profession and by training. I'm also board certified in addictions and clinical informatics, a triple boarded physician. I, I did my uh, informatics training. Before medical school, which was a little unusual, so I went and got a master's in, in clinical informatics and cognition and medicine, uh, which caused me to engage with my medical training probably a little bit differently. One of the things that I'd studied uh, in my my very earliest research was how we how we teach medicine and how we practice medicine and how we think about medicine as we do it. So it it set me in in what would have probably been a somewhat critical viewpoint of of my or at least a a skeptical viewpoint of, of a lot of what we were learning and how we were taught it. And I think that has carried through my career to date that I try to be very cognizant of things that we that we know versus things that are just the way we've done things historically <laughs> versus things that we maybe think we know but don't necessarily know super reliably. And tr- trying to categorize uh, our knowledge and the information we encounter in the world in that way has, has been... As much of a theme through my career as as anything, uh, I, I trained uh, at Tufts for residency for psychiatry. I went to uh, undergrad and graduate school at Columbia here in New York, and went to medical school at University of Colorado. So, have uh, been all over the country along the, the path to where
0: I am now. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting when you think about science, but especially medicine. Like, obviously, it, it relies on science and our knowledge is being updated all the time and it's you know an explicitly uh, science and knowledge driven profession. Uh, but it also relies on tradition necessarily, right Like you have to, you have to have ways that you do things just so that you can you can operate a medical practice. Um, and because we don't know everything right you have to be able to act even even uh, in the absence of knowing every single thing that might be wrong with someone or why or what to do about it. So there's this interesting, you know, sort of dynamic tension between sort of the science and knowledge side and, and the tradition side, just doing things because that's the way that they've been done. We, you know, thinking about medical education, I'm curious, like, w- w- what were you skeptical about or like, w- how does medical education work today and, and what are the ways that maybe it's um, deficient or the things that's maybe not focusing on?
1: Yeah, that's I mean, excellent question and I, I absolutely will second your point that, so much of medicine and the systems in which medicine is practiced. So the healthcare system, but also even our political economic system, you know, everything sort of exists in these outer uh, these layers of, of, of systems, the, uh, many of the components of which are either uh, political or, or non-scientific or, or not studied in a, in a rigorous way. So it's interesting to think in, in healthcare about layers that are, Studied in you know, so-called evidence-based medicine, and we can talk about what that means and maybe what it doesn't mean as well. While that sits inside of, say, a non-evidence-based but profit-generating payer system that that may uh, modify the way that the actual medicine is is practiced. Uh, specifically on on medical education, um, I, I do think that that there are some. Int- so one specific example would be that the way that medical students and and resident physicians are, are trained to think about diagnosis is this interesting process called differential diagnosis, where we give them a bit of information and have them think about all the things that could contribute to knowing this one thing about a patient. And then as we give them more bits of information about the case, they narrow the differential until they're left with a few possible options. And then the question is, well, what would you do to narrow the options further so you might know which direction to go? and while it's appealing to imagine that that's what's actually happening in clinical practice what we know from uh, the, essentially the study of cognition and medicine is that's almost never what's happening that when when a clinician walks into a room they have very quickly pick a leading hypothesis for what they're seeing and they ask questions to confirm and, and we hope to refute that hypothesis because it's very easy to just ask questions that go down the road of confirming the thing I thought from the beginning. And so that's the difference between forward chain diagnostic logic and reverse chain diagnostic logic. We teach it one way, even as those folks who've studied it know that the reality is that what's happening in the room is very different. And you can find lots of examples like that in, in medical and, and resident uh, education. I think another service that we do to uh, medical students and residents is not teach them enough about the system in which they'll be providing care subsequently you know, the things that they'll be asked to do to make money to make a profession out of the out of all the information they're gathering along the way so it's, those are two uh, somewhat isolated examples but but you can find things like that almost everywhere you look
0: yeah um I think there's an analogy with Basic scientific research, um, in the sense that you know you're trained to do the thing, um, but you just have to learn by doing what kind of uh, system you're embedded in, what kind of structure you're embedded in. Um, that you know, like like when you learn to do scientific research, you really more or less just learn the scientific research part. And along the way, you know you you know you learn to write grants and these things, but you don't really know until you become you know a PI somewhere exactly what you're dealing with in terms of, you know, running a lab from an administrative and financial standpoint, from, you know, what it takes to get grants and the the kind of pressure that will put on you and and the amount of motivated reasoning and confirmation bias this will um naturally give you. And um, you know, it sounds like it, it's similar in medicine. So there's there's not not such an explicit focus on the education side to uh teach uh you know who will become physicians uh what it's going to be like to work in a particular type of environment, um, especially one that's that, you know, it's ultimately profit driven, is gonna gonna naturally pull your thinking in, in a certain direction.
1: Yeah. And even if not profit driven, it at least has to get by, right? It has to make more money than it spends to provide care. And I think what you're the the maybe zoomed out version of all of this is uh you know, what what are the unwritten Rules of the space in which you're operating. What are the untaught aspects mm-hmm. of surviving? So if if you're purely uh, a, a provider, a doctor providing patient care, uh, you know, patient care is the is the the economy is the currency of what you do. And it's you know, are you are you seeing enough patients? Are you billing? Are you billing enough high enough billing codes to to make your practice profitable? On the far other end is if you're doing research, the the currency is papers and papers get you grants and grants get you more grants. And uh, a lot of folks, of course, live somewhere in the middle where they have a, a academic medical practice and they see patients on uh, with some of their time and uh, have to seek funding for research with other parts of their time. Uh, certainly in in both, there can be strong, and this relates back to what I was saying before about how we teach diagnostic logic, there can be strong incentive for confirmation bias. So if you've Often this ties back to one of my core interests, which is measurement. How do we, how do we measure things in, in science and medicine? Um, but I often talk about the fact that we report co- financial conflicts of interest as these bad things that were, you know, you should be suspicious of me when I tell you that I get paid to do this, that, or the other thing. But then to report things like papers written and grants funded about an idea we well, ought to be equally, if not more suspicious of the things that I built, the ideas that I built a career on that enable me to continue to get funding. So th- those are the things I'm most likely to go out and not refute because if I start refuting my own ideas. How am I going to get funding to keep doing
0: research? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's super important. I definitely, I definitely uh, you know, when I was in the academic world, like for my PhD, you could see that very clearly. Like you, you know, you're, you're in a lab, you know, there's people running various labs, all of those labs, right they they need money to fund all of the research you have to write a grant where you basically say here's my idea here's why it's relevant and important to human medicine or or whatever and i think this is the way it's it's going to work you know you're very motivated to prove something like that is true and once that wheel starts turning right you want to you want to keep it turning and so there, there's just you know it's and there's nothing the, the, it's it's not like anyone is Doing anything wrong, it's just that you're organically going to be motivated to go down certain paths and not, you know, disconfirm your your original ideas, because there's always going to be this lingering risk that that might shut off what what keeps everything going. Yeah,
1: I think. Well, we can obviously find examples of of just flat out malfeasance in science and medicine. Of course, there are people who are. Dishonest or bad actors for whatever reason, but those are almost less interesting to me. There, they are great, there are folks out there who are actively working to to find that and to root it out and to prevent it. And um, there's malfeasance everywhere, so that that less interesting. But I think exactly what you say, which is that people respond to incentives in their environment, mm-hmm. and often it's hard to identify the incentives if you trust that the meta structure that someone presents the things that they're that they're finding is the outside edge of analysis, right? So if you just look at findings in isolation from an individual research study, fine, you may believe that you've learned something true about the world. But if you shift that metastructure out, you know, in the aperture, as it were, um, you start to identify these incentives. Like, yeah, well, of course you're incentivized to continue to find that your previous findings are generalizable and replicatable and all these things. Yet so often when replication research, which is, relatively hard to get funded, right? You're not saying, I'm going to go find something new about the world. You're saying, I'm going to test to see if something we already believe to be true is actually true. And and of course, in all of science and psychology has particularly suffered from this lately, there's this crisis of of replication where, where other groups seeking to identify, uh, essentially replicate same or similar experiments end up with very different f- findings, which usually suggests that something about the meta structure of the original research was set up in such a way that that's what generated the finding rather than it being a generalizable finding about uh, a larger population or or applicable to you know other sites or other uh, regions or whatever it might be
0: yeah i remember i remember learning when i was in graduate school um <laughs> A, a, a replicable a replicable finding is you know across fields and across subfields is actually that you know when some result comes out we find that there, you know something is true we think about about the world um as that result gets replicated the effect size tends to go down over time um which which sort of points to what I think what we're talking about here is because people are incentivized to find these sort of big, dramatic, sexy results. And even when they do replicate, they tend to uh, very often turn out to be not not quite as striking as we originally thought as people do the the same or, or sort of uh, adjacent experiments over and over again. I think that's, that's exactly right. And it can be something as simple
1: as how much of social psychology or psychology research is done on college campuses where the recruitment population is college students at that particular university. And you recruit, you know, 40 or 50 or however, and randomize them and, and then run whatever the experiment is, find some finding and say, okay, well, this is true about people in general, but the, the selection bias happened way upstream of the research itself. The inclusion-exclusion criteria could be very robust, but if the population from which you're picking is just psychology students at an a particular undergraduate campus, you, you, you know that this is exactly an example of within that narrowly defined metastructure, this may be a true finding, but the, the generalizability is hampered just because of the population from which that sample was selected.
0: And you know, when you think about some of these things, you know how how the the structure in which we do things can can bias us. And when you think about um, things like medical education, how do you think these things have affected the field of psychiatry generally? Um, especially, you know, in terms of how we think about treating things. So, treating treating symptoms rather than than treating causes, and you know, putting people on medications that will be revenue generating over and over and over again over many years and things like that, you know, cause you know, some of the, some of the stuff we'll get into is sort of where is psychiatry today and, and where did it come from and where is it going? But, you know, what, what are some of the, I guess, what would you say some of the major problems are today in terms of how effective our psychiatric treatments are or aren't and, and where does that come from and how do you think about it?
1: That, excellent question. And, and right up sort of right up my, Ali, in terms of what I spend a lot of time thinking about when I'm not working on the core aspects of drug and and device development, psychiatry um, has allowed itself, I think, and contributed to itself becoming less than it it could be. And it's done that in the service of this sort of neuroscientification of psychiatry. But the, the reality is that neuroscience and psychiatry are still living very far from one another, and And that's okay. And we need to be making efforts to bring the two together, but recognizing in the in the interim that uh, fundamentally, the practice of clinical psychiatry largely deals with uh, signs and symptoms, right? The phenomenology of disease and things like the DSM, while we need standardized ways of defining disorders or diseases in psychiatry, uh, rough-hewn s- combinations of, of signs and symptoms just aren't aren't going to do the trick, and they don't really bring us toward a set of disease definitions that will have biological meaningfulness. And so, you look at things like uh, GAD and MDD, right, which we would think of as being pretty different diagnoses, right? One's an anxiety disorder, the other is a, a mood disorder and affective illness. Yet, the construct overlap between the, the disease definitions for GAD and MDD in the DSM is 80%. So that means that in theory, 80% of folks diagnosed with one also could be diagnosed with the other. And we see that they're co-diagnosed often. So we've got, and, and there, there are a few factors here. So this is going to take a minute of, of some history of psychiatry. But so fundamentally, we have a biologically imprecise set of disease definitions against which... Drugs have been tested and in some cases have been demonstrated to to work enough to be approved by regulatory bodies and then are prescribed for these conditions. But unsurprisingly, what we repeatedly see is that drugs that have very narrow and precise mechanisms of action are not shown to work because, of course, if you take a group of, say, people with GAD or MDD, acknowledging they have a range of biologically diverse underpinnings of their disorder. And and these disorders are, of course, the result of complex interplay between uh, the biology of the person, their their, uh, in utero and early childhood experiences, their adult experience, their current living environment, uh, the stresses in their life on on a day-to-day and and year-to-year basis. And so very precise mechanism drugs, well, why would we expect them to work against something that is likely a, a, a multitude of fundamentally rare diseases and drugs that do work against anything often seem to work against a bunch of things. So you think about the second generation antipsychotics that started with indication for things like schizophrenia, then wandered into bipolar disorder, and of course they're now adjunct antidepressants as well. So psychiatry, so taking that, you know, as as a starting point, and then we look at okay, so what's the role of psychiatry been in the world since it's, you know, the start of the, the start of the 1900s when is becoming a thing. And and psychiatry initially think back to Freud and uh, you know who's doing the, the talking cure for neurological illness, curing neurological disease with his voice, uh, and and people like uh, Kreplin, who were doing very fine grained phenomenology in in mental hospitals, and what what's happened is that along the path to here, one when a disease gets more of a biological underpinning, uh, so think. Uh, epilepsy. Epilepsy used to be treated in mental institutions. It was seen as a a psychiatric disorder. As neurology advanced and EEG signals for epilepsy were were discovered, it became a neurological illness. Now, there's some accidental uh, tales that come along with moving a a cluster of diseases into a new specialty, which is that we know that there are what we used to call psychogenic seizures or non-epileptic seizures. Now neurologists have to own non-epileptic seizures, even those. those are very likely more psychiatric disorders, some sort of conversion disorder. and And so that trend over time has reduced and changed what psychiatry takes care of in interesting ways. Every specialty has diagnoses that... The specialists in that field, like functional abdominal pain, acknowledge are, are a complex interaction between brain and body, which most diseases probably are, that maybe would better be treated by addressing someone's stressors and their mood and their anxieties. But, uh, and this gets into a whole nother line of, of reasoning, which is defense mechanisms and how we defend against uncomfortable feelings. Certainly some people defend against uncomfortable feelings by experiencing them somewhere in their body. So then when you confront that defense by saying, well, maybe you should go see the psychiatrist. Like, oh, are you telling me this is all in my head? And, and that's the defense doubling down on itself by saying, well, if you don't accept this is in my body, I'll just see someone else, right? Because when you confront a defense directly like that, it... It put, pushes back strongly to protect to protect itself and its protective function for the person. So psychiatry moves forward through time, and in the modern payer environment, we've disposed of our most precise and at times curative intervention, which was psychotherapy. And really, I'm talking about dynamic or depth psychotherapy. Um, and given that, to providers with less training who get paid less because they get, they're they expected to be able to make a living on the payment rates from third-party payers for psychotherapy. while well, psychiatry is very much moved in the direct, this is all, we're talking third-party payer supported. It's a different deal if you can afford to pay some privately and you can, you know, there are providers who just do that and provide psychotherapy as psychiatrists, or, you know, whatever else. But from a payer perspective, if you're a psychiatrist is going to take insurance as your primary payment mechanism be network in network and all of this, likely what you're doing is short med management visits, because that generates the sort of salary you were told to expect, you know, based on the training you received and the time you spent getting there. And so psychiatry is more or less relegated itself in the payer environment to prescribing. And psychotherapy has been uh, shifted over to, to master's level psychotherapists, who some of them are incredibly competent. And, you know, in no way do I want to Sometimes it sounds like it's sort of interprovider provider rivalry, but I'm really just trying to describe the reality of the, the practice environment. And because those folks likely have, they can go get a lot more training, but in order to practice, they have less training to get to get out the door. And psychotherapies like cognitive behavioral therapy were meant to be a solution to that. How do you take someone with less training, less experience, and give them something that's more likely to be effective? But of course, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, is not historically what psychotherapy depth psychotherapy was and it's you know by all again it's called evidence-based because it's easier to study it's easier to show results that look a lot more like drug results which is symptom reduction at four and eight weeks but maybe that's not the point of psychotherapy is symptom reduction at four and eight weeks maybe maybe symptoms get worse on the
0: way to getting truly better mm-hmm. and what um you know one interesting question that comes to mind is how how should we think about something like patient autonomy when it comes to thinking about the whole diagnostic and treatment process? Because on the one hand, you know, naturally naively intuitively you want complete patient autonomy, right? You want to have your choice of doctors. You want to be able to choose a doctor you're comfortable with. You want to be able to go to whoever you want. That's, you know, that's definitely my inclination as a, as a potential patient. I think it's everyone's natural inclination, but on the other hand, you know, just just like in any other sort of sector, we could talk about when when the customer, the patient, in this case, has the choice between multiple providers, multiple pr- physicians. You know, the sort of uh, insidious loop that that can take take hold is if you know if I don't like the answer that my physician gives me, I can simply go to another one until I get the drug and the prescription I want or the treatment I want. I I might not like I might not like a diagnosis even if it's accurate, just because. I don't like it. And, you know, I I can think of many examples in my own life. And I think this is probably pretty obvious to everyone. You know, a lot of people out there who have some pill they take or some treatment they're getting, they sought it out. They either got it on the first shot with the first physician, or they simply went to someone else when they didn't get what they wanted the first time.
1: You're touching on something that's incredibly important and societal even as much as it's medical. And there's so many different angles to look at this from. One is the ethics of medicine, where there are four values that can align or can be in competition, beneficence, non-maleficence, justice, and autonomy. And we in American medicine tend to privilege autonomy Over almost everything. So if you think about end-of-life care decisions, or as you say, the ability to sort of get the treatment that you that you think is the right one for you versus the one that that the first doctor recommends. Um, And intuitively, autonomy makes a a, just a a ton of sense, right? People should have the right to bodily autonomy to choose for themselves. But at the same time, that presupposes that particularly in psychiatry, that what someone wants for themselves is necessarily what's best for them so that the beneficence and autonomy can come into to tension with one another or that someone what someone wants for themselves necessarily represents what's best for everybody as a generalizable concept. So there it's autonomy coming into tension with, with um, uh, justice. And you can think of examples where what someone wants, so someone goes into an ER and says they have back pain and wants opioids, and that may be Harmful to them, so so those two values, non-maleficence and and uh, uh, autonomy, come into tension. So there are all kinds of examples where what the request for service is doesn't necessarily match what the the provider of whoever the patient is seeing thinks is best for them. And so, how do you resolve that tension? It's it's a really tricky thing. And then overlay on that, and an example I like to use is anxiety, so let's say neurotic illness, pain disorders, and addictive disorders. Some people clearly live in one piece of that pie or another, or one part of that Venn diagram, however you want to think of it, or another. But a lot of folks sit on an intersection between either two or all three parts of that. And for example, if you're someone who sits somewhere in the middle of that, you go uh, see a psychiatrist as your first stop, well, they'll take Probably an orientation toward how do we deal with your neurotic illness? You know, what are the medicines and the potential psychotherapies we can do for that to make your pain or your your addictive drive l- less relevant and less less important to you and less needed? Uh, if you go to a pain clinic, they'll start with the pain and give you pain treatments. And if you go to an addiction clinic, they'll start with with the addiction and maybe give you a drug to to reduce you know an opioid partial agonist like Suboxone to make it so you use fewer drugs. And so, what a weird thing. That the the person sitting at the intersection of these uh, likely disturbing and and uh, functionally impairing experiences of life is the one picking what the right treatment is. So it's it, it, it's both understandable that we privilege autonomy and, and and really tricky. I mean, another example is informed consent. So we we and and again, not saying this isn't important, but there are aspects of informed consent, particularly. An overemphasis on the risks of an intervention that increase the likelihood of having that risk. So the the nocebo effect is alive and well, right? That you can, if you if you hit what the bad things about this medicine are going to be too hard, someone's more likely to experience them. You know, you warn someone about sexual dysfunction enough, you can definitely get them to have some sexual dysfunction. And on the other side of that, if if a medicine is prescribed with with good trust and rapport between the person prescribing it and the person taking it, the medicine's more likely to work well. Uh w- w- you know, so so there there's clear tension with the right and, and responsibility for a person to know the risks of something they're undertaking medically, but also the risk that they don't sustain enough benefit or that they're even potentially harmed by knowing, knowing those things. And I don't think we have good resolution to this or or clear answers, but I will offer that there is, I mean, a, a real at least starting point solution in the dyad between a physician and a patient is to discuss these things and, and if there's of course now there's the tension with time in the room and and billing and all the and all those things but to start from the perspective of what, what are your goals for yourself how can i help you reach those goals and to make it to make it as much as possible about the person and what they really need versus what their their
0: primary request for services is you know, one of the things we'll talk about, too, is sort of the mental health trajectory um, in of the U.S. And, and the Western world, broadly speaking. Um, I mean, I think most of the world, broadly speaking. You know, a lot of things are on the rise. So mental health, by many different measures, has been on decline for, for quite some time. So, you know, we, we can cite various statistics to anchor us, but, you know, anxiety and depression, Generally up and to the right for for most groups, some more than others. Things like ADHD up and to the right, uh, autism. I mean, you know, we we go down the list. Um, You know, more people are being diagnosed with things. More people are taking not just a psychiatric medication, but often combinations of them. Very often, chronically for long periods of time. You know, costs are ballooning, um, et, cetera, et cetera. But just on, on the piece of sort of our mental health trajectory, how do you start to think about the? um the apparent conundrum of, you know, on the one hand, things are good, right? Like we have more technology and fancier technology than ever. We have more medical and biological knowledge than ever. Um, Our lives are easier by uh, many measures than they were for, you know, our ancestors in the deep past, certainly. Uh, They're more comfortable at least. Um, And yet, you know, people are sadder and more anxious and less able to focus. And there's a million different things we could talk about that tie into this, and, and many different sort of levels uh, where the discussion c- could sit at. But w- why are we on this mental health trajectory, and what does that have to do with the way that we conduct Western medicine today?
1: Well, you, you certainly acknowledged one part of this, which is maybe maybe we're just detecting this better, and we're giving people permission to to, to be unwell in whatever way they are and to ask for hopefully to ask for for help with that and that help may come in the form of medicines that 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 may help um that that's almost well interesting from a health systems perspective and a a service delivery perspective i think from a a philosophical or even from a true psychological angle is a little less the interesting question which is so let's let's assume that we do, as you say, probably live in about the safest world humans have ever lived in. Um, with well, some blips; COVID obviously was not a, a period of radically increasing safety or anything like that. And wars and things will will put us into uh, regressive periods where where more people are dying younger. Um, but generally speaking, we're pro- safe as it's ever been, and and more likely to have. Access to food and water and things that that you know hundreds of years ago or even a 100, 150 years ago less well, likely of course there are places in the in the world where that's not true there are places in the country where that's not necessarily true where there's not access to to say clean water in in, in certain places um, but why are we so anxious why are we so depressed and th- there's an angle on that which you mentioned access to technology so for even with folks who have their basic needs met and are able to get food and water and shelter and and are generally you'd think living in what should be relative comfort versus most of human history why why are we so anxious and so depressed and i think part of that is that we're constantly confronted with messages of danger and risk and it's it's all around us right uh partly i think because that sells that captures we're in an attention economy and uh, have been for, for a long time in terms of print media, but, but certainly in, in you know, video media, uh, starting with TV and progressing through now to sort of everyone being on TV and somewhere else too, right now, of course. Uh, but we're, in order to keep attention, one really effective strategy is to to present risk. We, we're evolutionarily attuned to pay attention to to messages of risk, to potential danger. And so being constantly inundated, by messages of of risk, I think, uh, very likely a component of this. I also think, uh, and, and again, this is sort of a worldwide phenomenon, but also uh, very present around us here, the uh, economic inequality and being constantly exposed to what the great things that other people have or you perceive them as having, while at the same time being confronted with extreme poverty, I think leaves a lot of folks who aren't on either end of that striving in a way that they're reaching for something they're unlikely to ever grasp while at the same time having to look down literally beneath them on the streets and see what happens if they don't just keep grinding
0: and what about you know just just talking about abundance itself um i think you know it's very easy for people to think, oh, we we live in this world of abundance. There's lots of food, there's lots of stuff around. And that's why things um, you know, are comfortable. And that's why the modern world is what it is. We've we have used uh, you know, our, our brains to create technology and to create social structures that give us an abundance of stuff. And therefore, it, it's it's often counterintuitive to think, Look, well, if we have all this abundance, why are we becoming less healthy in many ways? But is it possible that abundance itself is the problem you know if, if we sort of think about think about that question and then you know in parallel think about you know early hunter gatherers the types of people that we evolved from you know they had to go out every day and, and there was many signals of danger in their environment right like they didn't they didn't have billboards and facebook and social media but you know you actually had to go out into the woods or into the savanna, and there were actual monsters that would eat you potentially and you know you really had to think about getting food not because uh you just want something tasty but because it was a matter of of life and death and d- d- does abundance play a role here where you know all of these sort of uh, basic survival things are there and they may not be equitably, equitably distributed. They may not be, you know, where we want them for everyone. But we don't have to. We don't have to go out into the world and and move our bodies for literal life and death reasons like our ancestors did. And so that abundance creates space for a lot of other mental health problems to to just bubble up because we 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 aren't focusing our minds on literal life and death day by day, week by week. Yeah. It's certainly possible. I mean, this is this is something where
1: uh I often wonder what it would be like to engage with phenotypically, genotypically modern humans. You know, as they expanded across the earth, they're crossing the Bering Strait with thirty thousand years ago, and what what that experience was like uh, of course communication would be somewhat difficult and think we'd have a common a common means of communication but even just watching social interaction would be in- incredibly uh interesting you know where where does dissatisfaction come from I sorry the hard question and if we had easy answers to this we would certainly uh you know we'd probably be better off if there were modifiable uh factors uh alienation from one another I think though is is the is sort of you know, last 500 years of of human history is probably dominated by increasing alienation from each other and and alienation from self, which which of course manifests as these defense mechanisms I was talking about earlier and 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 just the fundamental feelings of unease uh, in the world. When I was I used to practice addiction medicine, I did uh, addiction clinics in in the Boston area. And the the best conceptualization that I heard from uh, of the nature of addiction through that was was lack of connection. That addiction sort of replaces uh, true human connection, and and certainly as we look at what sort of masquerades as human connection today, uh, a lot of it isn't. A lot of it isn't the the sort of connection that you'd hope for, and that that you could derive satisfaction and comfort. Uh, uh, from and and you know certainly, uh, well you can have a large count of people on your your Facebook, your Instagram, or LinkedIn. I wonder how much of that actually causes the feelings of satisfaction that come from a real sense of of connection.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it strikes me that you know on 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 the one hand, we live in a hyper connected world in social terms, um, but on the other, but in another sense, it's actually the opposite. You know, so if you think about. You know our ancestors, the the our, the the type of uh, human being from which we evolved, that we still are sort of under the hood in many ways. You know, we we evolved in bands of you know dozens, maybe hundreds of people, most of whom you knew and probably knew very well. You know, family, very close friends. You know most of those people were not mere acquaintances, but today, right. It's, it's much more likely that you have many, 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 many more connections, many more people that you know, or know of, but the strength of your connection, the thickness of the line connecting you is, is much weaker today. Um, and that, that does seem to be a trend for a lot of people. And so we're in this, I guess, somewhat paradoxical situation where the opportunity for connection is, is sort of more abundant or easily available. And yet, the, the number of strong connections appears to be going down, I think, for a lot of people actually, despite that.
1: Yeah, and maybe even the strength of those strong connections, you think about what, what ought to be sort of... Uh, if you just said, well, automatically, who, who are your strongest connections with, and you know, family, either family of birth or or a family that that you've created through bonds like marriage, and fifty you percent know, of marriage is ending in divorce, and as much interfamilial, uh, you know, birth family acrimony as exists, it it does seem that even in those places where the strong bonds ought to be identifiable or, or where we would point to and say, well, that's those are the strong bonds, m- maybe they're not. And, and I think that I think that both the sensation of those bonds not being as strong and or the the worry that they might go away is, is a huge huge source of distress. This relates to uh, narcissism, of course, which is experiencing the self through the reflection of a your own projection our projection and how it's reflected back uh, There's a whole interesting thing about ca- character development personality that sort of, is a through line, I think, from very much what you're describing, the sort of modern modern evolution of our relationship to one another in two and, and, uh, and three technology.
0: And so, I mean, so when, when we think about mental health and social connections and, and start to try to tie that into like how how psychiatry approaches treating things today, um, oftentimes with medications that are taken chronically that are sort of just just you know nudging nudging things one way or the other if you think of something like an SSRI right they're just they're they're essentially just elevating serotonin levels and the, the hope is that that's going to sort of nudge you in a certain way or, or another um they have some level of effectiveness that we can talk about um but you know now you know the subject that that you work on and that will sort of come to and tie into this is you've got a very different kind of medication being talked about in the mainstream now, which is psychedelics. And they aren't sort of like they aren't these drugs that have sort of um specific and and um um you know what would you say? They have sort of, you know, an SSRI sort of is a drug that has a sort of broad weak effect. It's just sort of meant to like kind of nudge you in one direction. Whereas, you know, when you take you know LSD or psilocybin at a sufficiently high dose, you know, you're you're going to have you know, a, a, an hours long experience that you'll remember for the rest of your life. So it's, it's a very different kind of beast in terms of how it works acutely, at least. And so h- how do you start to think about some of these things and and how does that inform sort of the direction that, that you've gone in? Yeah. Again, that opens up just so many interesting doors that we could
1: walk through. Uh, I'll start with uh, SRIs. I don't include selective in there because, you know, they're not hmm. pretty. Early. And so here we have uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, right? That uh, We know that they do that. And and when they were developed and, and approved, we said, okay, well, that's the mechanism. We're going to call them SRIs. And uh, they start blocking the reuptake of serotonin after the first dose. And you can see fMRI changes in amygdala hyperreactivity after the first dose. They're doing something right away. But we all now know that they take weeks and sometimes months to get to the right, to, to get up to a high enough dose that they actually... Do whatever it is they're doing, which is clearly not reuptake, it's not mediated through the blockade of the reuptake of serotonin, it's mediated through some downstream or other process. So, even those, you know, since since the very early 90s, the drug that had been prescribed millions and millions of times, don't really know how they work, but what they do is modulate symptoms. And I said this about cognitive behavioral therapy before, that very much of the same sort of modality, which is can we make the distressing symptoms in your life less distressing. And you know I have to be so careful. in what I do, you know, mind med is we're developing drugs that fundamentally are different than that, or some are, and some some are more similar to that. Uh, to be careful not to dismiss that, the, that these do add real benefit to real people's lives, and there are people whose lives are a lot better because of cognitive behavioral therapy or, or an SRI that they've taken chronically and their life is more livable and, and they're more functional because of it. So I never want to dismiss that out of hand. We got to have a lot of tools uh, to deal with the, the reality that a lot of people are suffering and they're suffering differently from different underlying uh, pathologies. But then you look at a drug like uh, MM120, their mind meds, uh, pharmaceutically optimized uh, LSD. And and as you say, multi-hour experience after taking it, and then lasting change. What's really neat is, again, as you said, people have experiences potentially while they're uh, on drug that can be extraordinarily uh, deep and meaningful and, and memorable. And, and again, you know, memorable in some cases for the rest of someone's life and maybe described as the most important experience of their life. And I think it's really a, a nice idea that they work at least partially by that mechanism. There's a debate in the space that you know between i think a false dichotomy between they work via some psychological effect and they work via uh some sort of neurobiological sequelae of of what the drug does on the receptor level i think the answer is probably both and different in different people but they are you know lsd specifically very very potent Uh, all of all of the class uh, is able to to result in strong perceptual and mood and, and affective uh, changes. So the, you know, the, we're, we're talking about drugs that that are drugs still, but do seem, and, you know, do have these, these very, very profound acute changes associated with them. Um, the, the hope of course, and I think as, as more and more research is done, as our research comes out, as others does, and as we look at retreatment over time and, disease trajectory over time. The hope of course, is that these drugs are more like say dynamic psychotherapy and that they create lasting change in how it is to be uh, the person who, who's been treated. And, and, you know, w- we we're always hesitant to talk about cure or, or, you know, uh, uh, does even disease modifications a little strange when it comes to psychiatry, but lasting change really is the highest hope for any psychiatric intervention and and these drugs more than any other I've seen offer uh, promise in that direction.
0: And so can we talk about, you know, some of the specific work and the trials that you're doing at MindMed. Uh, get you know give everyone a basic overview of, of what MindMed is and, and sort of where it comes from. And maybe let's just start with the one that you mentioned, the MM120 drug.
1: Yeah. So MM120 is a pharmaceutically optimized form of LSD. Uh, it, it's been MindMed's leading drug for as long as I've been with MindMed for almost two and a half years now. Um, we are currently conducting a, a sponsored uh, regulatory grade phase two trial with MM120. And the, the point of this study is to look at uh, different doses so we have four different dose arms, 25 micrograms, 50 micrograms, 100 micrograms, and 200 micrograms, and then placebo arm as well. And uh, it's a single administration. Now, interestingly, now that you've heard me go on and on about psychotherapy, uh, in our drug studies, we've really de-emphasized psychotherapy to the point that we don't have psychotherapy happening in our studies Um you know, you hear ideas like preparation, integration thrown around. I think they mean so many different things to different people that they're almost not meaningful terms anymore. So if we call preparation something that happens before someone takes a a psychedelic drug, well, we we have an informed consent process as someone joins the research study. And that process includes things someone might experience while they're on drug or not on drug, of course, because some folks are either getting a low dose or a, a placebo. It includes what the folks in the room who we call dosing session monitors—they're two in, in every session—might do if someone's having a, a tough time or, or has an anxious reaction, or if they need to go to the bathroom and don't feel super comfortable getting there on their own, or they want a snack. Um, and and then we have assessments after after the the uh, session, and what we're looking at as our as our premier outcome measure is the Hamilton anxiety score, which is the standard regulatory grade uh, FDA facing uh, instrument for assessing anxiety. And we're looking at that at, at primarily four weeks, and then also following out to eight and 12 weeks to see about sustained change. And we're doing, we're doing some tests earlier on as well to look at the rapidity of the change and, and how quickly people uh,
0: experience that, that change. And and you said it was um it's a clinically optimized version of LSD. So so what does that mean? What was optimized about it? How does it differ from regular LSD, whatever exactly that means? And why did it need to be optimized in some way?
1: Yeah. So LSD is tricky to make and it it's it potentially in, in historically has been unstable and doesn't have good shelf stability. And and um obviously LSD manufactured in, in illicit labs is of unknown. Quality and, and who knows what else can end up in there, but uh, this is so regulatory grade, uh, manufactured via good manufacturing processes with uh, with very good stability, um, delivered in a in a uh, medically recognizable way. Uh, some some of what we're doing in the development of LSD uh, as MM one twenty is still uh, uh, undisclosed. But, but certainly as we as we work along the way and, and as more IP gets published and things like this there'll be there'll be more to say about how exactly we're going to deliver um, a, a
0: to be marketed mm-hmm. product. So uh, okay so so one of the ways it was optimized is that we know L- LSD is sort of a very um, it, it, it's sort of a complicated chemical and it's very delicate right So it's light sensitive, it's heat sensitive um, you know for those who don't know it's it's actually very sensitive you took a vial of LSD, and you know put it in indirect sunlight or something it would basically be destroyed in you know I, I don't know an hour or two or certainly an afternoon um okay so it's it's a more stable version and can you just talk a little bit we don't need to go into a lot of detail but uh maybe you can't yet but like how was it How is it stabilized or what does lsd detartrate mean chemically so it's it's a salt with the detartrate uh, which
1: is not always with what- LSD salt is is made with, but uh, you know both the manufacturing process, the uh, conditions under which it is uh, introduced into the the capsule formulation that we're using in the in the phase two B storage conditions, all of these sorts of things address exactly what you're saying that that we we want to make sure that the drug we're delivering to participants at the at the study site, you know, at the time of their dosing is what we claim it to be. It's the, you know, the, the right, the right quantity of the, of the active drug and not, you know, not degraded in any way um, at, you know, at the time of administration. Um, and, and as I say, they'll you know, they'll obviously over time they'll be able to say more and more about how we're, how we're thinking about it to be marketed product. Mm-hmm.
0: And so r- remind us, so what the clinical trials that are underway or that will soon be ad- underway um, what ailments are you looking at? And, um, like, why did you choose LSD as opposed to psilocybin or something else? And wh- why did you choose, um, these ailments? Yeah. So g- generalized anxiety disorder is the target
1: of our phase to be uh, five arm study, the, the dose range finding study. And as, as I said before, GAD, uh, historically a very relevant disease, the primary focus of psychiatry for a long time, really until the SRI era was anxiety disorders, and it was only through the the, the promotion and and sort of um, mainstream and, and widespread adoption of SRIs that MDD became this primary diagnosis. And of course, as any diagnosis gains, uh, a, a population behind it gains epidemiological relevance because being diagnosed more, uh, more money flows into it. And that's a, a sort of a forward feedback loop that's led to just a ton more focus on MDD over the last 30 years or so. But we think JAD is an incredibly valid and relevant diagnosis uh, the pendulum does seem to be swinging back to a more moderate, like moder- moderate or modulated direction on thinking about depression versus anxiety and how they they fit together and or sometimes don't fit together. You know, there's recent uh, USPSTFs, so that the Preventive Services Task Force for the United States that makes screening recommendations based on uh, disease burden and cost effectiveness and things like this, has now recommended over the past past year and a half, that all adolescents and, and children, I think eight years of age and older, get screened for anxiety disorders, that all adults be screened for anxiety disorders. So growing recognition of the importance of anxiety, uh, it seemed like a good white space for us with most of the other companies in, in our sort of uh, field or adjacent to us going either in the MDD or PTSD direction. That seemed like a, a good place for us to go. Why LSD is a really good question. I mean, one, nobody else is really doing it. Certainly not close to where we are in in progressing it, whereas there are a lot of psilocybin companies. There are several companies looking at shorter acting uh, psychedelics. The idea that MM120 uh, might have more horsepower to, to create lasting change than other drugs, right? It's known to have a slightly longer uh, duration of, of the uh, acute experience. Well, maybe that translates into... More durable or more um, pronounced, more you know, stronger I- impact on symptomology. So, a combination of of being able to go to someplace that most other folks weren't going in both diagnosis and drug, and a, a very real, you know, historically before the the prohibition era and psychedelics, LSD was by far the most studied. Uh, of, of them all you know, the thousands and the 10,000 plus patients in in some form of clinical study or another good efficacy demonstrated against a range of affective and substance use disorders uh, anxiety disorders. So, you know, you look back historically, LSD was what folks picked to work with. And then you move to now and the focus really not being on it, it, it presented a, a great opportunity to take a drug that had generated so much historical excitement and to bring it back into the to the sort of mainstream drug development processes.
0: Yeah. And I'm really sort of intrigued and um, <clears throat> pleased that you guys are, are not only, you know, Doing, try, you know, you're doing other things as well. Um, You know, you're using a hallucinogenic drug. You're actually using, you know, what's probably one of the, if not the longest-lasting one. Um, And you're doing that even though it's it's inconvenient in many ways. Um, The the natural incentive for a lot of people doing this type of work is right. People naturally want shorter-acting drugs because then you don't have to have a six or an eight or ten-hour session with someone. Right? There's a lot of emphasis, and and I'm sure you guys are also probably working on these types of things to find non-hallucinogenic. Derivatives of psychedelics because right, that would also be convenient. Um, so if you think about, you know, the structure and the incentives of the healthcare biopharma industrial complex or whatever you want to call it, right? The ideal drug is, is <laughs> going to be one that's that's short acting, <laughs> yeah. that's non-hallucinogenic, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to the extent those can be discovered, great. Um, but but as you said I think something's very important here the fact that the experience lasts so long is to do with the fact that LSD you know sits into its its receptors for a very long time and right there's good reason to think that might actually potentiate some of its beneficial effects so uh, I, I I think it's good that you guys are are pursuing this this type of drug
1: yeah the, the, I mean your point is is well taken it's a very very potent very, very potent drug given in, you know, microgram tens, hundreds of microgram level, not milligrams and, and, um, and does sit on the receptor in a, in a, in a different way than maybe other drugs. And uh can obviously have a bit of a longer uh, acute duration and dose dependent to some extent. Um, the idea that shorter acting drugs better fit into the existing paradigm for, for care. Okay. Yeah. That, that's probably true. And no, this the existing paradigm for care. Is that some inviolable thing that has to continue to exist forever? Well, no, it's an, an emergent property of a system that had certain treatments available and incentive structures set up. So, you know, what we're confident in is that if we can show st- strong, rapid, durable effects, that the system will accommodate getting that to people who need it and and we're awfully focused on things like health economics and outcomes research to really starting even now in the phase 2 to look at longitudinal utilization and be sure that we're, we're actually able to induce lasting change in how someone accesses and needs uh healthcare services because ultimately those data will be the ones and we bring efficacy and safety data to the regulators for for drug approval but boy if we just get drug approval and folks in need can't get drug because we haven't done the groundwork to show economic benefits to payers, then we haven't really done our job. This has to be accessible to folks who can't just pay, you know, can't pay out of pocket uh, in order for, for us to have been successful, both as a company financially, but I think uh, as drug developers who who actually want to see change in the world. So there's sort of been both an ethical and financial incentive to make sure that we're really delivering something to people suffering that they can get
0: access to. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, thinking about LSD itself, um, I I don't know if you've completed any of these trials with LSD or you have results to report there in terms of the trials you guys are doing. Um, but what's, what's known about LSD, both from human and animal research in terms of how it's working and why it might be a good candidate for something like anxiety disorders.
1: Yeah. Well, we've hit a couple of these points already in the historical we point to the historical research mostly academic historical research as more hypothesis generating than hypothesis answering. And that's true even of academic studies that are, that are done uh, today. But again, like I said, you know, 10,000 plus patients dosed in various clinical studies in the pre-prohibition era and a re- remarkable efficacy against the whole wide range of, of conditions dosed at, at lots of different dose ranges. I mean, people talk, uh, and again, this goes back to the very beginning of our conversation about, uh, what we know versus what we sort of claim or, or think we might know, and so people talk a lot about set and setting as a sort of a, a set of concepts around uh, psychedelic administration. But there, there is a historical LSD study where people given, I think, eight hundred micrograms. So our highest dose wow. in our arm study yeah, is is two hundred micrograms. Yeah. And let's um, let's remind people, uh, like,
0: a, what would a standard recre- rec- recreational dose be? Something like hundred to hundred and fifty micrograms.
1: I think uh, yeah, 100, 100 to 200, 100 is considered. And again, this is you know anecdotal, and who knows it, to some extent, you don't really know what people are getting in terms of precise dosage ranges from from an illicit supply of drug. Uh, but sure, a hundred is is a is a certainly a perceptual perception altering dose, and two hundred mm-hmm. ought to be pretty profoundly perception altering. Well, I mean, and, and for one hundred can be too. Um, the so eight hundred. A whole lot, a lot. And this, yeah, this was an experiment again. And we're talking in the in the fifties, done with folks with what we would today call alcohol use disorder and then alcoholism, uh, where folks were given eight hundred micrograms and like just strapped to a gurney in an ER, and like left to ride it out. And it showed good efficacy in those studies too. So it's you know the, again, there's so much here that that we don't know and that hasn't been investigated in a rigorous modern way. And it's one of the reasons our phase two is is uh, set up the way it is, particularly particularly things like uh, multiple dose arms and taking psychotherapy out of the equation, so we know we're just testing to the extent possible isolated drug effect, not a complex interaction between drug and a psychotherapeutic process. Um, a-, a lot of what we even if you look at it, we have another uh, MM120 study where we're looking at 20 micrograms every third day uh, at a couple of sites in Europe uh, against ADHD. And the hope there is to investigate in a a rigorous, sponsored way, does sub-perceptible or perceptual threshold dosing create change? And there's a lot of anecdotal reports one way or the other. There's there's some uh, mm-hmm. not- You're talking about local. microdosing. Yeah, you'd notice I kind of consciously didn't say microdosing. I, I, this is another, and, and we try to sometimes stay away from some of this language because it carries a lot of implications, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, there's you know, a drug like uh, uh, Cotiapine or Seroquel uh, can be dosed anywhere from about 20 milligrams up to about three grams a day <laughs> is the use. It doesn't what it's labeled for, but- you know that's higher than labeled. So you think about the difference between even twenty micrograms and two grams. That's bigger by a lot than the difference between twenty micrograms and two hundred micrograms, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a ten x difference. So nobody talks about microdosing Seroquel. and so we're right, right. very much. I mean, it's almost t- it's what's a it?
0: sub sub perceptual, I mean, right? Yeah,
1: or or. Well, and and so we say subperceptual, but what I, we mean in this mm-hmm. case is well, we know it doesn't create uh, hardcore perceptual Halluci-
0: hallucinations. Yes, yeah, it would cause
1: yeah. someone to be unable to function normally in their daily yeah. life. But if you have ADHD and now you're better able to do the tasks of your daily life, well, that's a perceptual change right, too. Right. It's just not the same as you'd get if you took ten times the the mm-hmm. dose or or like that at all. So just doing the the, the legwork to to figure out. Does this low dose, this sub sort of perceptual dose, to do something that enables folks to be to be able to function better? And that's another study that we'll expect to read out. So the you know the the phase two for GAD, uh, we expect to read out by the end of the year. The um, the ADHD study, which is a smaller study but but uh, very much a sort of proof of concept study, we expect to read out by the end of the year as well. Asking two fundamentally different questions about MM120 and LSD, but bo- both of which fill gaps in our
0: in our modern knowledge base about about the drug. I see. So, so we should expect to hear the the results of some of these um, later this year.
1: Yeah, that's that's what we've been guiding is that we'll have top line readout from both of these studies by uh, by the end of this year. Yeah.
0: I see. And what does what does top line readout exactly mean? Like a, a paper is published, or does that mean the results are shared publicly? No, that, but- we, no, that would be
1: the publication process takes a while, but, but yeah, then we yeah. announced that we would announce you know primary readouts from from the unblinded data, right? There's a whole process once you, once you finish running people through whatever outcome measure you're gonna run through, then uh you know unblinded analysis of the data, of course, because to date we we of course have stayed blinded to the treatment allocation. So we don't we don't have any and and in fact no one has unblinded has been looking at the data from an unblinded perspective. So that's what happens as you go into mm-hmm. the, the sort of um uh analysis and readout phase of the study.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another drug that's very interesting that people are very excited about is MDMA, obviously MAPS, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. They've been they've been doing the very large uh, phase three clinical trials for PTSD, and they've gotten, you know, really striking, really promising results there. Um, And you guys, I think, are using it for autism spectrum disorders, which I think is very, very interesting. So for those who don't know, maybe give a little bit of background on why MDMA would be a good candidate for that particular disorder and just talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing there. Absolutely. And
1: I'm glad you raised MAPS because one of the important things to point out just from the get-go, there are two critical differences between how MAPS PTSD study with MDMA uh is being conducted and what their their study procedures are and 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 of course what their commercial target will be uh and, and our uh, our MDMA programs, where MM402 is the right enantiomer of uh, of MDMA. So MAPS is using racemic MDMA, so it has a, a right and left enantiomer. And I, I, folks, I'm sure listening will either remember or not remember from high school chemistry that molecules can have chiral centers, which means that fundamentally they become non-superimposable mirror images. So think your hands, right, that they are non-superimposable and they are me- mirror images for the most part. Uh The other difference so, we're just using the right enantiomer, and I'll talk in a minute about why we picked the right enantiomer. The other difference is that MAPS is using racemic MDMA as a psychotherapy enabler or enhancer, uh, which historically it had been used as before it was scheduled, uh, you know, made, made schedule one. And fundamentally, what that does, uh, and having talked to folks who've been involved in the current study and historically I was trained by some people who had used racemic MDMA in the in the pre-ban era and it it builds a sense of rapport and a sense of trust and connection between a uh, therapist and and patient and uh, for a lot of psychotherapeutic processes that they depend on that openness and trust and willingness to share and uh, uh even things like in the psychotherapeutic encounter uh, transference feelings right I'm now feeling something about you but saying that can be really hard in psychotherapy right what you need to you need to experience the transference and communicate it to the psychotherapist so you can interact with the transference together and so things like that are enabled by the dose of MDMA that that, that is being used in those PTSD studies uh, those studies use a, 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 a you know a, a form of psychotherapy that that maps this sort of chain folks in and all of this we are so right in an antimer let's start there so it looks like the left and right enantiomers based on animal data some limited human data uh the left enantiomer seems very much to drive the amphetamine like effects of MDMA mm. so the stimulants so yeah the qualities, yeah, qualities of it. stimulant qualities so uh in in animals that can be uh measured by increased locomotor activity they walk around more they're moving around more uh in higher doses it seems to drive the hyperthermia that can be associated with higher doses of MDMA um the the right enantiomer, and this is very so. This we call it the stereospecific pharmacodynamics, right? That, that the receptor action. You'd think two molecules that are very simple, fundamentally non superimposable mirror images of one another, would have relatively, you know, sort of intuitively say, well, shouldn't they do the same thing? But often in in neurobiology, we find no that in fact, different. There there is a lot of stereospecificity, and the right enantiomer seems to. Drive in these animal studies, including an animal study that, that uh, we recently conducted, looking at a, a fragile X model of, of autism in mice, seems to drive a lot of the pro social activity of MDMA.
0: So, so in other words, so people have done experiments where they give mice just the R version and and just the F or just the S version, and yeah. they see differences in the amount of. Pro-social behavior change with the that's two. A, that's
1: exactly right. and like, differences
0: in the amount of locomotor activity. So mm-hmm. that you see that that the left drives like loco-
1: like walking around, moving about, and the right drives the, the social the social behaviors.
0: I see. So, so that makes sense of why you're, you you chose this enantiomer, the R MDMA, to yeah. to do the autism study with.
1: Yeah, and so then the other key difference is we are thinking of MM four hundred two as a uh, repeat daily drug. For folks with autism spectrum disorder and what we know fda did a patient-centered drug design uh, workshop with folks with asd and caregivers and and other stakeholders in the in the communities and social communication social connection social relatedness all float to the top as things that both caregivers and and of course people with autism spectrum disorder uh, want help with and in the current and and there there are Psychotherapeutic interventions that can help there, there are occupational therapy interventions that can be helpful there. But, but fundamentally, from a from a drug perspective, the drugs approved for ASD to date are really oriented around behavioral discontrol. So things like second generation antipsychotics that for someone who uh, has ASD and has difficult difficulty with behavioral discontrol. A drug like a second generation antipsychotic, which is sedating and has some other uh, receptor effects that might help with behavioral discontrol, but it's not fundamentally an enabling drug. It's really about suppression. And the hope is that, that RMDMA, as a daily drug for folks with ASD, can be an enabling drug, that it can enable folks to engage in educational, uh, vocational activities, activities of daily living that involve social interaction and be better able to perceive. Uh, social intent from others to engage in social activity with others, to possibly yeah. perceive their own uh, internal state better. Yeah,
0: And what's interesting about that, too, is sort of the acute effects of increasing pro-social behavior, the ability to just go interact with people in a in a good way. You know, to the extent that that does happen, that you know that would actually sort of unlock downstream benefit because then those social interactions themselves will have neuroplastic effects and and lead to learning and and plasticity all on their own. You you sure hope so. I mean that
1: so the the analogy that I often use for this development paradigm is psychostimulants for ADHD, and we've had those for quite some time now. Uh, they're certainly you know not. This is not a totally clean, like this is great for everybody, and we should have them. And I'm not, I'm not advocating or not advocating for psychostimulants, they're very appropriate in some cases. Um, but when we give folks with ADHD psychostimulants, they're better able to engage in their lives and to pay attention and to and to be less hyperactive in school and things like this. And and whether that leads to lasting neurobiological changes or not, I, I'm not gonna. I don't have a dog in that fight, but the idea that by being able to better participate along the way, that people's life trajectory changes, we've, we very much have seen evidence of that. And so it would be absolutely awesome if RMDMA treated folks then we're better able to have these same social experiences off drug over time. If it were disease modifying, that would be awesome. I don't have evidence one way or the other. Of course, we'll look for that as we develop the drug further, but at the very least trajectory change. So if you think about someone who's engaging in school and better able to communicate and make friends in school, well, that's going to change the experience of being in school and make it a a more pleasant, more desirable experience. It'll change the ability to learn from peers. And so whether there's lasting neurobiological change, which again I just don't can't tell you uh there's very much my you know I'm very hopeful that trajectory change life trajectory change is possible just by being able to be more functional in one's life
0: and um I can't remember if you mentioned it. can you remind us the doses that you're using for this study and then after that, maybe talk about um how you guys think about things like um whether or not there's any any risk to chronic administration of m d m a especially in the context of the sort of um uh, colorful history in MDMA research around neurotoxicity and dose, and different views on that.
1: Yeah, so we haven't we haven't talked about dose yet for because what, what we're doing first is of course phase one. Our MDMA has not been in clinical trials before, certainly not sponsored clinical trials. Um, so the first step is, is phase one, where we look at at dose, tolerated dose, and you know we'll start. We'll do regular. It's called SAD and MAD. So single ascending dose and multiple ascending dose study to look at um, both low dose effect because we can start to look at this is a neat thing about prosocial effects. We can look at it in healthy folks too, you know, unaffected folks. So we'll we'll start at relatively low doses and dose up to look at uh, side effect profile and and dose limiting. Of course, if we get to dose limiting side effects um, stop, and then in the MAD do something similar. Just look at day day by day. Dosing, and then the hope is to, and and so that that study, the phase one, will start by the end of the year as well. And then we'd like to have a a, a cohort of folks with ASD uh, as a third cohort, as a third part of that study, to look for what we would call ESOE, early signs of efficacy, uh, to to sort of gain internal confidence that we're headed in the right direction, that this drug at a dose that's tolerated and and uh, uh, and safe. Creates the the effects we're looking for in terms of the ability to to interact socially, um, so that that's where we're at in that
0: development program. And so, and so uh, what kind of doses are you using, and how, how would those compare to say what a, a what we think a standard recreational dose is? Lower. lower. So, okay. so I mean, we'll certainly we'll start lower. The point of a phase, the point of
1: the phase one is is also to get to what dose we'd like to use to test efficacy. Yeah. So, yeah. so mm-hmm. where we'll end up with the actual dose that we bring in to, to look at efficacy. I can't tell you because that's mm-hmm. part of the experiment where we're, we're going to be doing. But um, are we talking like ones or tens of milligrams? Uh, m- tens, tens plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of phase one is getting uh, safety coverage above where you think you'll need to go. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that those doses can be pushed uh, reasonably high. Of course, what would monitoring carefully to be sure that that we're we're not exposing anyone to to risk um the and this relates to the second party question that I didn't answer before which is how do we think of toxicity and a lot of this sort of breathless 80s coverage of you know MDMA and neuro neurotoxicity and swiss cheese brain and all this sort of stuff is just not is not evidence for that in any really rel- what you'd call a reliable way and so we are doing a very standard IND enabling tox package, so you know, investigational new drug applications, which you file with uh, with FDA to be able to take a, a new drug into people. We're doing the animal tox now; that's required to go into human studies, and looking at a, a whole range of potential toxicities. Uh, so far, the, the you know, I, we have some animal tox work that'll be published, and so far, what we're what we're finding is that we expect that we'll, again, as I said, we'll be able to to open that IND and head into a phase one. Um, you know, c- certainly the the phase one start by end of year is something that we've said uh,
0: consistently. And so, um, you know, on your website, there's also like a section on digital medicine. And so what is that? And, and what is that all about?
1: Yeah, and we didn't talk about this at the beginning, which is the the how I came to mind med at all, and why why you're talking to me about this stuff. I was not in the psychedelics world in any real in any way. Um, I had been developing drugs at Pfizer in the past, and, and psychiatric drugs, and and Pfizer left uh, left neuroscience, and so. One of the things that I worked on at Pfizer after Pfizer left neuroscience was what we call digital medicine uh, and the ability to use digital devices and digital tools to uh, do better measurement. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. We were talking about disease definitions and phenomenology and uh, signs and symptoms. And so my thought then and and subsequent to leaving Pfizer when I found a company called Health Mode was how do we use digital tools to best Measure the signs and symptoms of systemic illness, not just psychiatric illness, because all, not all, but a lot of, uh, systemic illness suffers from the same definitional problem, which is that the disease definitions are built on signs and symptoms. We don't have terribly accurate or precise ways to differentiate in a fine grained way between signs and symptoms that might look similar or even have the same name, but not be the same thing. And so when. Uh, MindMed acquired Health Mode and brought me in as chief medical officer. Uh, we brought digital capacity in from Health Mode as well, and we're looking uh, at a number of different angles that we can use that digital technology to uh, measure things that can assist in understanding the diseases that that are anxiety and affective illnesses, as well as are there things we can do at the point of of care where a drug is being administered and someone is having a a, a dosing session to help the folks monitoring the person know things about what's happening with them. And that can um, ultimately, that will lead to uh, some uh, regulated labeled digital devices called software as medical device that can assess folks who are working with people uh, at the point of care with, with uh, MM 120 and other potentially other drugs.
0: And, um, <clears throat> you know, this, this is for, uh, this is a uh, kind of a hot topic. It's very general. There, There's multiple ways to think about this and where, where we could go with it, but the, the idea of whether or not the psychedelic effects, the hallucinogenic perceptual changes of things like LSD, psilocybin, and so forth, whether or not they are basically just side effects and they're not therapeutic. Therapeutically relevant, or whether they are very relevant to to therapeutic outcomes, how do you how do you just start to think about that problem in in general terms? I'll I'll just leave it there. Yeah,
1: and a lot of people think and talk about this, and talk. You know, again, we talked about the idea of a psychoplastogen before. I, I try as much as possible to go back to some basic principles. Uh, our brains are plastic. They, they, with neuroplasticity, is a thing. I mean, this is what Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize for, right? It was that memory requires structural changes in your brain? That's a good thing for a lot of reasons because if encoding memories didn't require changes at a structural level in your brain, where, where are they being stored, <laughs> right? And and so it's easy in psychiatry sometimes to drift into the sort of functional dualism of like something other than the brain being the mind. I think we have to sort of abandon that and accept that the brain and the mind live in the same place. And so this conversation, or even for folks listening to us have these conversations, if it if they remember it, we've created physical change in the brain. So that's a constant thing, right? Um, how does that relate to healing or 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 getting better or feeling better? Uh, open questions, all of them. Uh, there are drugs in psychiatry that are known to be very plastogenic, like lithium is one of them. And lithium is a of, you know, remarkably effective drug for, for bipolar disorder. It's also shown efficacy against depression that doesn't have a label for that. Um, so the, the idea that we know the, I don't think we know the answer. As I said before, I, I hope that the experience, I hope the psychological mechanism of the drug, it, it, it's, it would be, I think, Real, like a nice thing, it would be a great thing if that mattered and that was part of the mechanism. I think that we are increasingly aware that there are downstream, long-term changes that can be induced by by using uh, uh, existing psychedelics. Whether those changes are are the product of the psychological experience or the product of some downstream signaling and neuro- neurobiological process, I don't think we know yet. I understand very much the appeal to companies of going and looking for non hallucinogenic drugs that create similar downstream changes to the existing psychedelic drugs. I, I, we will only know once those drugs get to people, if they're actually, uh, psychoactive and, and result in, in, you know, as I've said about, about MM 120 and, uh, rapid, uh, profound and, and durable, uh, change in, in people's, uh, psychiatric disorders. So I, I you know, I'd say that the jury's out there, people working hard to try to answer these questions. And um, the nice thing about having uh, MM120, which is, again, has this historical efficacy data, uh, a lot of evidence for safety, and uh, now increasingly emerging evidence for efficacy, even from some collaborators of ours in Switzerland who've published on both efficacy against anxiety disorders and. depressive disorders, you know, academic studies, of course, but uh, valuable nonetheless, that we almost, we get to dodge that question a little bit of psychological versus neurobiological and say, well, okay, if we can move a clinical, a valid clinical outcome assessment in a, in a strong way, rapidly and durably, then we've got a a good drug to bring to market that will help people. And of course, we, we were very conscious of having a pipeline behind that, but uh, currently, what we're really mainly focused on is this drug that, that's extraordinarily likely to, to show efficacy.
0: And you know, for, for a lot of these drugs, like you're referring to it as MM120, and this is another name for this particular LSD salt that you guys have developed. And you know, what ties into that is the idea that, you know, this is going to be a, a particular version of LSD that is patented and owned. And so if clinical trials turn out the way we hope they do, and these drugs are brought to market. How do you how do you think about you know the questions around accessibility and cost, and how does that tie in? You know, how do you have to think about that as sort of the science the science person doing the clinical trials, as a business who has to keep itself going and running, and then also patient accessibility and making sure things aren't you know exorbitant or inaccessible to the people who actually need the treatment.
1: Yeah, and there there are a few components of. Of access, and that there's a drug price component, and then there are the service prices that sit around uh, around the drug. Uh, drug pricing is something we'll have to come to, and uh, that's we, we've hired a actually a chief commercial officer now for quite some time, uh, and and are increasingly thinking about how to both demonstrate value and and through the demonstration value come to appropriate drug pricing, and then thinking about environments in which this drug might be prescribed and and when, which it might be administered. Um, the, the kind of thing that I think gets lost a lot of times in these conversations is that it's well, while there's a lot about our current drug and uh, this entire environment that feels really different, and there are things that are really different, there are a lot of things that aren't that different. And so for a psychiatrist or an advanced practice nurse to, to see a patient, someone with prescribing power, do an evaluation and management visit. Uh, Build their insurance for that evaluation and management visit well there's that's that's going to be probably done exactly the way it's done today for any prescription the doctor will meet with someone and maybe meet with them via telehealth and do a robust assessment of of their appropriateness for treatment and their safety uh, you know their ability to take the drug safely they'll prescribe it uh likely the drug will need to meet someone at the place where it will be administered could be administered in a lot of different kinds of places you know there are uh Clinics that have come into existence around interventional psych- psychiatry, like clinics that do as, uh, Spravato or Esketamine as, uh, as a treatment. And so they have facilities set up for monitoring and for someone to be while they're on the treatment. Um, individual psychotherapist offices, I mean, while, while for our drug studies, of course, we're using uh, study sites, there's no reason in a commercial world that a, that a psychotherapist who ordinarily practices uh, of talking psychotherapy couldn't be a session monitor and, and monitor someone while they were under, you know, having an experience with, with drug. And, and so, and here's the part that I think, you know, in in a lot of the talk about billing and coding uh, what gets lost is that most psychotherapy gets billed today and it's a time-based code. And uh, a lot of this bravado in the world is getting billed as a psychotherapy hour plus a hour long psychotherapy add-on code because there's a two-hour monitoring period. And if someone's getting, you know, six treatments with sforbato in their first two weeks or 12 hours of time in clinic, plus the back and forth and travel time starts to make a a single day of MM MM120 LSD treatment, that's actually less time. And if you have a a durable effect that lasts out, you know, 12 weeks, well, that's, that's going to not be unfamiliar, right in terms of a time commitment from the payer to compensate the provider for an effect that lasts that long um you know weekly hours of psychotherapy are often covered by by many payers so while there is going to be a lot of uh demonstration of value that we have to do and uh, a lot of engagement with payers and, and providers to be sure that folks are ready and confident and comfortable to to engage in a world where where something like mm 120 is available uh the, the, it's not that far from from where psychiatry is at times today.
0: Are there any other you know psychoactive drugs that are in your r and d pipeline beyond the lSD and the MDma uh, chemicals that you're working with and and if so what are they? There's one other uh,
1: disclosed pipeline uh, component, which is a drug that now has uh, a lot of names. Um, MM110, uh, 18MC, and Zalunacant are all of its different names. It's a a non-hallucinogenic derivative of ibogaine, ibogaine being a, Mm. a, um, a hallucinogenic compound that has been used to treat addiction and is used in the underground and outside of this country for, for addictive disorders uh, does cause pretty profound hallucinosis for folks. And uh, Ibogaine has an unfortunate uh, cardiotoxic potential where some people have what's called prolonged QT and, and suffer from a, a heart dysrhythmia uh, from, from Ibogaine. So 18 MC or is Lunican, or, or MM110. I never know which, which name to use uh, doesn't have the cardiac uh, liability. It doesn't have the hallucinogenic potential. Um, we brought it through this drug was was in the, the pipeline when when I joined the company, it was in a phase one. we brought it through the phase one, um, got to to dose coverage and exposure coverage that we uh, believe uh, is likely to, to correspond to to the animal data that suggested efficacy. Um, there's some some more uh, doc, uh, animal talks work to be done to be able to bring this into a into an efficacy study. Uh, so right now, because of the capital markets and, and really needing to focus our resources on uh, 120 and 402, uh, Zalunikant's 18MC has been in a bit of the backseat for, for the last bit here, but we're seeking uh, um, non-dilutive funding, grant funding, to, to try to do the additional work we would need to do to go to go into uh, an ESOE
0: efficacy study in opioid withdrawal. And can you give us a sense for like how long some of this stuff takes? So like, let's, let's say the phase two trials for LSD start to finish, you know, from, from sort of inception and and really sort of hitting the ground, starting those trials to when you think like the first, you know, results will really come out and be announced. How much time are we talking about there? Is it a year or two? Is it longer than that? A year or two is, is reasonable for, you know, we, we consider ourselves
1: to be, uh, as efficient as anyone in the space and to be you know we we've, we've got a really fantastic drug development team who are incredibly competent and capable at, at running these studies uh in our in our studies we are very close to the sites so this is not the kind of thing where we hand it to a contract research organization and say go go run our study of course we have a CRO involved for certain functions but our our ClinOps and, and clinical team are in, in almost constant communication with, with our sites. I I personally have visited uh, a number of the sites. Rob Barrow, our CEO, has been at a number of the sites. So we try to have very, you know, we want everyone to be aligned. We want, we want these studies run with as high fidelity, as much of a focus on safety, uh and and uh you know adherence to protocol requirements as possible. So uh But yeah, a year or two for the phase two, you know, again, what we've said is, uh, and what we'll continue to say is read out by the end of this year, um, sometimes these study startups can be a little more complicated than more like sort of regular drug development startups where you don't have to have uh, schedule one licenses at the sites and things like that. Of course, we're still handling a schedule one drug. Lots of lessons learned through the conduct of our phase two that we'll bring into the phase three and and we uh we're going to just turn that over as quickly as we can into you know from the end you finish the phase 2 get the data back have an end of phase 2 meeting with FDA where you ask questions and propose a phase 3 plan and transition that into as rapid a study start as we can and of course have pre-existing relationships with sites and sites who have got phase 1 licenses or have schedule 1 licenses at this point so we we're, we're we're eager to just keep you know keep cranking along and and to get to Uh, get to the phase three and get to obviously submittable phase three data as quickly as we're able.
0: And can you tell folks just a little bit more about MindMed? How long has this company been around sort of, you know, when, when and why was it started? And I I don't know, maybe talk a little bit about like, um, you know, what's your sort of strategic vision that informs like how and why you're making choices around, you know, which drugs to test and, and which drugs to look into?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Mindmed was was founded uh, one three three and a half years ago. So uh, by by folks who I think saw you know that none of these original founders are still involved with the company, um, but saw the opportunity, saw what was happening in the space.
0: listening to the free version of the Mind and Matter podcast. The first part of episodes are freely available to all listeners, and the full episode is available to paid subscribers at mindandmatter.substack.com paid subscriptions help sustain the podcast and increase the quantity and quality of the content I produce. However, I don't want anyone to miss out on learning from my guests just because they can't afford a subscription. If you're interested in hearing full premium episodes but can't afford a paid subscription, simply sign up for my free weekly newsletter, send me an email, and I will give you a free paid membership, no questions asked. Paid subscribers enjoy benefits like ad-free episodes, early access, and other subscriber-only content on The Mind and Matter Substack. As always, I thank you for your support. No matter how you engage with Mind and Matter, the simplest and most effective way to provide support is to share your favorite episodes with family and friends. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld, pocket sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast. Each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND M I N D in all capital letters to get $50 off your Lumen device today.